Today's another one of those days when we have to say farewell to another one of our families who have been called to a new area of living and ministry. Mr. and Mrs. Charles Sweeney leave our midst this week for their new home in Arizona, and we wish them well in the sunshine of that state as we bid them farewell in the snow of today. Hear the word of God now as it is found in the book of Colossians, the fourth chapter, beginning to read at the first verse. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. On Wednesday when I dictated the sermon title, Bernie Kennedy, my very capable secretary, continued to write furiously, as she does in her efficient way, but she looked rather puzzled at the sermon title for today. Last night, as my mother always does on Saturday night, she asked me what today's sermon was going to be, and I gave her the title, and she answered with a puzzled, silent look upon her face. I'm sure those of you who are at home and could not brave the elements to come to worship today heard Dale Bailey, who is our radio technician for this morning, announce, as the technician always does, the sermon title and the anthems that will be presented in the service to follow. For those of you who did not catch it, the sermon title today is Will Sidney Be Right? And for those of you who get very excited about sermon titles and can't rest until you find out what they're all about. Let me tell you that the Sydney that I have made reference to does not appear in either the Old Testament nor the New Testament, but in the Daily Post-Gazette or in any other publication that does present the syndicated column by Sidney Harris. On the first day of January of this year, he presented, and I'm sure some of you read them, his predictions for 1976. And as I was reading them, I was struck with this one which has become the seed thought for this particular sermon. Allow me to quote it to you. In 1976, says Sidney Harris, public speakers, politicians, and preachers will attack our conformity, our apathy, 
our selfishness, our short-sightedness, and our failure to live up to Christian principles, and will be enthusiastically applauded by conformist, apathetic, selfish, short-sighted audiences who fail to live up to their Christian principles. And will Sydney be right? Will we fail? in 1976. This prediction he made, not by looking into some crystal ball, but as he says, by taking a fast backward glance at the chronology of 1946, 56, and 66. And he sees us, the Christian community, failing as well in 1976. Will Sidney be right. Maybe. I hope not. And I know he will not be right if, if Christians, you and me, if we will follow some of the advice which Paul gave to the Colossians how to have an active, vital, meaningful, earth changing faith. Let me suggest these to you. I would like to think that Sidney will not be right if we individually remember every day that each one of us has a master in heaven. As you see, we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. We are not the captains of our souls, nor the masters of our fate. In the doctrine of vocation, which has been developing since the time of the Reformation in the early 16th century, it is a basic Protestant Christian belief that if one is faithful unto God and to the leading of his Holy Spirit, we are doing God's work. We are called, no matter what it is that we are doing, selling peanuts, owning a company, running a factory, being president of the United States, teaching in a classroom, or standing in a pulpit. No matter what your vocation, if you have sought the wisdom of God, you are in a vocation that he has called and equipped you to perform. No one of us, you see, therefore has the idea or should have the idea that we are boss. We're in God's business and God has said to us individually, I have put you in charge and every one of us is accountable to God. And no person, I don't care who he is, has any right to feel that he can do his own thing and be responsible to no one. Every one of us has accountability, not only to our employers and our bosses, but every one of us will be held accountable on the day of judgment to our Master in heaven, Jesus Christ. I know how we need to be reminded and remember that, because you see, it is not natural for any one of us to think in that particular realm. Because of what theology calls original sin, I would much rather call it natural sin, there is the tendency in you and in me to do what we want to do, to try to compete with God and to think that we can eat of the fruit of the tree, any tree that is in the garden. 
we're our own boss. We don't have to explain anything to anybody at any time. And there's absolutely nothing further from biblical truth. And I think we've got to say that. And I think we've got to believe it. And I think you and I have got to remember that. If Sydney is to be proven wrong, we can remember that each one of us, no matter what our position in life, we have a master in heaven. Secondly, if, if we remain steadfast in prayer, especially prayers of thanksgiving and in prayers for opportunity and for strength. Now that sounds easy enough because I think most of us do pray. And we think, well, that's something that we can do, though we may not always be good in reminding ourselves that we're not boss. Yet, is it easy to pray? I bear my soul when I tell you, and I hope it's not too much of a disappointment, prayer is very difficult for me. It's not easy. And I say that not boastfully, nor do I say it apologetically, but I say it very realistically, humbly and honestly, having been not only a pupil, but almost a daily practitioner of prayer for more than 30 years. And still, prayer is very difficult for me. My mind wanders. I'm not quite sure if I should stand or kneel. I do both. I'm not sure when and where. I'm not quite sure of the language, and, and, and one of the things that really bothers me is that I have a tendency to get into uh, cliches and repeat myself continuously when I'm in conversation with God. That's what prayer is, you know, asking our Father who is in heaven and listening to him. And I know that if I were in conversation with any one of you, if I said today the same thing and in the same way that I said it yesterday, you probably wouldn't want to hear me. Tomorrow you'd know what I was going to say. So trying to be original with meaning and not being blasphemous or sacrilegious, that's very difficult for me. And I find myself falling back into the same pattern. One of the things that has helped me in recent years, and I pass this on as, as perhaps advice, if the shoe fits, put it on is to engage more and more in prayers of thanksgiving. And if I could analyze my own prayers over the last ten years, I would find more and more they're turning into prayers of thanksgiving rather than any other form of prayer. I had a real example of this just this past Thursday. After I had had my private prayer and morning devotion, I, I left my home and was on my way to the church. When suddenly I realized that I was looking at the most beautiful morning I have ever seen in all of my life. Thursday, January 8th, 1976, will probably be the most beautiful day, morning, that I have ever seen in all of my life. I never expect to see one as beautiful as I saw last Thursday. And as I traveled across Ridge Road and then down Bakerstown Road under those great snow-covered branches which served as a canopy, 
I found myself audibly praising God, saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And on my way to work Thursday morning, I had a spiritual experience. And I had one of the most moving experiences of prayer that I've had for some time. I suggest to you, if you have trouble in this area, pray prayers of thanksgiving, original prayers that are prompted by the moment of experience. And pray then also what I think Paul is trying to tell us as he wrote to the Colossians. Pray prayers for opportunity and prayers for strength and power. It's quite interesting, you see. Paul, who is the great practitioner himself, the one who uh, tells us to pray without ceasing, this one who is a great proponent of the power of prayer. Look what he asked those friends of his to pray for. Not just for his own person, no. He asked them to pray that God would open new doors of opportunity and that he would give unto Paul the strength to see the ordeal through. Now, that, that, that means something, ladies and gentlemen. Here was Paul. He was in prison when he wrote this. He could have very easily said, pray for my release. But he didn't. He was a man who had the thorn in the flesh, and though we don't know much about that sickness, he was ill, and he could have asked his friends, pray for my healing. But he didn't. He was going to be coming to trial. He was in trouble with the government. He could have asked that God, please, petition and through intercession, ask God to release me from this particular burden of which I am innocent. But he didn't. He asked only for two things. One, pray that God will open up doors for us. And secondly, pray that we'll have the strength to go through them and to do his will. You see, that's what it's about. Let us pray, not for release, but rather strength to go through. Let us not pray for or escape from responsibility, but rather pray for new avenues of opportunity. And I really believe that if we couple these with prayers of thanksgiving, Sydney will not be right. And especially if we as well become people who conduct ourselves wisely, wisely in the presence of those who are outside our faith. How do you treat them? People who do not know God as our Father in heaven and Jesus Christ, his Son, as their personal Savior from sin. How, how do you treat them? I find most people in our situation go to one extreme or the other. There's a large majority who, who say, we do nothing. We avoid the conversation. After all, is not religion something of a personal nature? We have no right to try to persuade anybody to our particular belief. Uh, it's not up to us to either encourage or discourage. Religion is up to them. Let them believe what they want. Or we go clear to the other extreme and we're like gangbusters. 
We come on with prayer. We come on with perseverance. We usually end up making a pest of ourselves and the person running. How do you do it? I would recommend either one of those methods. I have yet to find anybody who got argued into the kingdom of God, nor have I ever found anybody who got in here by being avoided. Every born-again Christian who is within the voice of the sound, or the sound of the voice of this preacher, has been born again because somebody, somewhere, took the time to ask us to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and never forget that. Well, how do you do it then? How do you win people for the kingdom? By conducting yourself wisely, and what does that mean? It means making the most of time. Making the most of every opportunity that comes to you. Already we've said, we pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities to be a live witness, alert, intelligent, wise, and attractive. Pray for that opportunity and expect God to answer. And then be sensitive to the leading of his spirit. Be sensitive and look for that sudden turn in the conversation. Look for that unexpected occurrence. Look for that unplanned incident. And when it comes, strike. Strike. Take advantage. Make the most of the time. And without any falseness, but with true sincerity, just open yourself up and roll with the punch and swim with the wave, allowing the Spirit of God, who has created that moment, to work through you to make the most of that moment. We do this, you see, in business, in industry, in education. We do it in the sociological world, the political world, the economic world. Why not in the spiritual world? Let me give you an example. This has developed beautifully within this past week since last Sunday within our own particular enlarged community. We had all hoped, planned, I hope nobody prayed because I don't think that was kosher, that the Steelers would win. We had no ability to dictate one way or the other. That was determined upon a well-organization, very finely coached team filled with excellent athletes. But once that game was over and that particular championship decided, look what happened. Radio personalities, newspaper editors, travel agencies, every type of uh, momento maker, all sorts of programs suddenly developed towards the Super Bowl. People are going to make a lot of money, and some of you are going to lose some. And we are all thrilled and excited because somebody had the initiative, the know-how, and the intestinal fortitude to put a program into practice. Now, not one of those personalities 
had anything to do whatsoever with the winning of that football game last Sunday. But once that opportunity came, they're burning the midnight oil, they're working hard, they're getting coverage, publicity, and we praise them for it and get excited with it. We call it good old-fashioned capitalistic Yankee know-how and ingenuity and get involved in it. Why don't we do that for Jesus Christ? That's taking advantage of the opportunity. It comes a little snow, <laughs> and we shut down. In some people's mind, why not take advantage of this great day that God has given us and see the possibilities and the potentials here to be a, a wise conductor of the Spirit of God. That's what it takes if we're going to help Sydney to be wrong, as well as graciousness of speech. Let your speech always, says Paul, always be gracious. You see, what this means, no matter who it is we're speaking to, be it employer or employee, parent or partner, child or commander, friend or foe, there's absolutely no excuse for anything but gracious language. Speech that is kind. Love is kind. Love is never rude. Speech of a loving person is always gracious. Yes. And then to continue on, Paul says it should be seasoned with salt. And he uses this idea not in the naval sense where we should have talk that is like that of a sailor, but rather in the sense of the Savior. Because in the days of Jesus, salt was used to identify three things. One, purity. Second, it was used as a preservative. And thirdly, it was used as influence. And what Paul is trying to say is, ladies and gentlemen, let your gracious words be pure. Speak what is only honest. Let your words have preservative power. In other words, protect those things that are good and right with language that is gracious. And let your words be influential. Use them to climate or to color the climate. Use them. In other words, let your word mean something. And if there's a word that needs to be said in America today, it is that. Oh God, help us to be people of our word. So that when we say something, people can count upon it like they can of the sun rising or shining tomorrow. Will Sydney be right? I don't know. I hope not. I hope not. And though I don't know that man, having been acquainted with his writings over these many years, I think I know a little bit something about him. And I think Sidney Harris would love to be proven wrong. 
But if he's not going to be right, there's only one way it's going to happen. It means we have to do right. Amen. Father, you've placed us at exciting time in history. You've given us all sorts of tools, and you've empowered us with your Holy Spirit. Father, may this beautiful day of opportunity not go wasted, but even now, may we help the prophecies of this day to be fulfilled in that same spirit of Jesus Christ who is not only the light, but who gives us the power to be right. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.